Hi, Kyle. Welcome to the podcast. You are the Senior Director of Engineering at a company called Foursquare. And I remember the first time we talked, you described Foursquare to me as the original location-based social network. So, so I'd like to start there. Could you just introduce yourself to us, please? Like, who are you? How did you get involved in the original location-based social network? Yeah, well, my name is Kyle Fowler. As you said, Director of Engineering at Foursquare. I joined Foursquare in 2011. So I've been here for quite a while now. I was originally a third-party developer user of the Foursquare developer tools. You know, really interested in the problem space of checking in and knowing where I was uh, and tracking that history. Wanted to build my own tools to interact with my data and went to a developer event one night and was suggested that I apply for a job. And I've been here ever since, <laughs> working on a whole bunch of different things from I started as a mobile developer on the BlackBerry platform way back in the day. You know, my roles changed quite a bit since then, but uh, still looking and interested in solving the same type of location problems. Did you ever have anything on the Windows platform, Windows Mobile? Yeah, I uh, I, I wrote our apps for the uh, Windows operating systems on the Windows Mobile in probably twenty that's uh, probably twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen, Windows Phone eight and ten. That was a good time. <laughs> no, no doubt. Hey, um, I introduced Foursquare before as the original location-based social network. W would you mind just putting a few more words around that, please? Just help, help the listeners understand what Foursquare is, M maybe what it was back then and, and what it is today. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about Foursquare is I, you know, I think our mission has always kind of been the same, uh, though what it's looked like to the uh, outside has changed and shifted over the years. But you know, making the real world more usable. So at the beginning, that was your social network, facilitating, meeting up with friends, discovering new places. And as we've kind of evolved, that's evolved into helping other companies get as much value out of the real world as possible, whether it's through places data or our API products or our advertising, you know, enablement products, you know, really it's how do companies and our users get the most out of the physical world. And so that, that's kind of been a common theme throughout uh, the history of Foursquare and something I think we're still holding true to today. My naive understanding of Foursquare is that there's a couple of different apps involved. I think one of them is called Swarm. Perhaps you can explain a little bit more about that later on. And, and the idea is that it is the social network where I check into places and help people see where I am, I can show my, my network where I am, what, what I checked into, what I'm doing at this place. I slowly but surely build up a library of places. And then, I, of course, I can see where other people check in and what their experiences were at these different places. Am I on the right track? Yep, that's accurate. Uh, we have two main consumer products, uh, Foursquare and Swarm. Foursquare being the more discovery search experience and Swarm being the more social network experience. Could you tell me a little bit more about the Swarm app in particular? What does it do? Who uses it? And how does it work? Yeah, Swarm is our, think of it as our check-in app or the term that we use is life's logging. It is a product that is built around tracking your history of interaction with the world. So I can go back in my own profile and search for basically since I've been an employee for so long, everywhere that I have gone since 2010, which is really great for me. It's, it's my diary. I'm not a 
a journal writing person, but I am a swarm using person. So I know everywhere that I have been with uh, high accuracy in the last 12 years, uh, which is really helpful for me just to keep a, a personal log of where I've been, photos and friends that I've been with uh, and just kind of experiences. So th that is kind of the, the main use case that swarm caters towards is, you know, life logging and logging it with your friends. Does that mean that I'm actively checking into places? Am I, and this sounds kind of strange to say it like this, but am I actually actively participating in this life logging or is this something that's just passively happening as I move around the world? We support both. Uh, the primary use case is you actively logging. If some people might not want to log every place they go and only do the ones they care about, but our in-app functionality called Pilgrim, technology we developed many years ago around how do we use background location to suggest places that you have been. So if you are a user of Swarm and you go and turn on background location, you do not need to actively use the app to log your places. You can go in once a week, you can see your history feed of all of the suggested places that we think you were, and you can confirm or deny them. We know that asking someone to interact with an app uh, every single place they go is a really high burden. Um, but for those who you know, want a high fidelity record, having background location on and it will generate a feed for you uh, of visits that you can confirm and kind of use that as your active way of building your history. As a user of this app, can I download this data myself? So, a lot, and let me give you some context here. So, a lot of people listening to this are geospatial people. So, they have access to all kinds of interesting software. And I'm sure for a lot of people, this would be a fascinating data set to download and play with. So, again, the question can I get access to this data that I am producing through Swarm App? Yep. You know, via two ways through the GDPR type access requests. So you can go on your profile and request all the data that we have for you. Uh, that will include all of your check-ins and all of that information. So that's kind of, if you want a large dump of data, that's the best, the best way to get it. The other way is through our API. Anybody can come sign up to be a Foursquare developer. And as a part of that, you, know, you would be able to use something. Uh, if listeners are familiar with OAuth, uh, you can authenticate your developer account uh, with your user and can use your access to pull your data. So you can pull all of your check-ins. You can use it to run analysis or build you know, your own features. Like as a side project, I built a visual scrapbook. My wife loves taking pictures at places and you know keeping them private, but I could go and I built a, you know, a, an annual scrapbook for her out of her Foursquare data. So you can, you can do fun projects like that, uh, to kind of take advantage of, you know, we have lists in the app, you can add lists of places and with the Foursquare developer accounts, you can interact with your data, how you want to. Now, this is a very leading question. Is this as easy as it sounds? So people go to somewhere, I go to, you know, Dave's big pizza shop and, you know, check in here. I've got a GPS on my phone. It's, it knows where it is in the world. I look at a map and say, I am here at this location. I'm at Dave's big pizza shop. Check in there, write some stuff about it, done. Is it that easy? It depends on what you're using the product for. But yeah, I think 
conceptually to the user, it is that easy. Underlying that technology is much more complicated in getting it right. But I think to a user, it should be as seamless as possible. You open up the app, the app knows where you are and you can you know, record something about your experience with that place, whether internally or externally. Why is it difficult on the, the back end? Why is this not as simple as, as what it sounds when it comes to manipulating that data, running analysis on that data that, that people like me are creating when I check into a place? What, what are the problems that you face with that data? Yeah, I think the, uh, the first problem is kind of core to Foursquare's business is what are the places in the world? Just because you open your phone doesn't necessarily mean that Foursquare or another app that you're using knows what is around you. So correlating, you know, where you are to the buildings and businesses or points of interest that you may be interested in recording your history at, that, that is a significant data problem in the first place. How do I know that? You know, I live across the street from a school that I am visiting the school or I am visiting the gym or, you know, a bench in Central Park. N knowing the corpus of places in the real world is a large challenge. And then layering on top of that, how do I know for a given set of coordinates, uh, what places are the most relevant for a user to say they are at? Uh, especially a bigger problem in cities with uh, GPS drift and uh, signals bouncing off of tall buildings, slightly skewing your location across the street, knowing what side of the street you're on can be a challenge and surfacing the right place at the right time to ensure a seamless, you know, kind of user experience for us and our, our partners is a big challenge. So I realize you mentioned a couple of things there, but could we stay with the idea of how do we know all the places in the world? Because my understanding is that this is what the users are doing. They're slowly but surely building up a list of all of the places in the world. But my guess is there's a little bit of, there's some you know, complications around this kind of crowdsourcing. And one would be like, is this a real place? Is it actually here? Are people just making things up? Could you talk to me about how you solve that problem? Yeah. And we take a few different approaches to our places curation, I'll call it, or our places engine, would be kind of what we call it internally. And to get a good amount of coverage, you have to pull from everywhere that you can possibly pull data from uh, and then kind of turn that into what we believe is the truth. So crowdsource uh, is one aspect of it uh, and a huge contributor to our, our data. But you're right, you know, you have to, to balance, well, did this person add their home and a home may be relevant to them, but is not really relevant to any of our other downstream users for privacy reasons. We don't want people knowing what your home is. And, you know, we also may not have users on every corner of the planet and there may be smaller pockets of users in more rural cities. But how do we still get the best coverage of all of the places in that area? Yeah, so you know, we have other more machine generated approaches, you know, standard web, web crawl type features that have known sources of potential places that we can ingest from. We have trusted, uh, data contributors where we will license some regional data from 
other companies who may have a uh, more vested interest in a specific area, but for completeness of coverage standpoint, we want to purchase data from them. But then the, the problem gets to be more, okay, how do I take a thousand different sources of data and pull them together and synthesize a single output places data set from all of those sources? If I had to solve this problem, one of the things I'd be looking at would be, does this place exist in, in multiple of these other data sources? Or maybe I would be thinking about, can I get other users of the app, other users of, of Foursquare to confirm that this place exists? That kind of thing. But I'm sure you have much more sophisticated approaches than that. I would say we, we do have more sophisticated approaches. Uh, that one is always the best one, right? You have real humans verifying that something exists. You know, we'll have single source places. Uh, like we only have one website that says that exists or one user. And so our goal is, uh, we have a, a quality audit process that sends out samples of places to human moderators that can say, yes, this is real. No, this is not real. Uh, and then we have a lot of machine learning models that go behind the labeled training data and input sources that can give us some confidence scores on whether or not a place from a source is real. And where that also may come in is there are bad sources. There are sources that we use that turn out to be bad sources, and we need to know how to downweight or discard that data before it makes it into the final product. But the basic example you gave is the best, is still the best way to clean and verify a data set. And we just have to take that and develop methodologies to make those small amounts of labels valid across the 205 million places in our data set. That could be you know, photos added in Foursquare or tips left or check-ins or someone clicked on it in the app while searching. It kind of varies, but taking as many data signals as we can to give us more confidence. We have a model called our reality score, and there's a lot of features that go into it. It is one of the kind of the core drivers of how we clear out the junk from what's actually good. It sounds like a huge challenge. I, I'm wondering if you, if you look at things like, does it make sense for this place to exist in, in this neighborhood, given that we know these other places around it? Like, d does this relationship make sense? Does it make sense to have a bank here in the middle of whatever? Does it make sense that there is a kindergarten right next to, I don't know, some sort of toxic factory thing? Like, do, do you look at those kinds of relationships and say, well, does it make sense for a place to exist given that we, we know so much about a neighborhood? We don't do exactly that, though. That's a good idea. I'm going to take back to the team. So a lot of our places data is categorical. All places have categories attached to them. We do use that as a like, well, there shouldn't be this type of place in this country and a lot of country specific categories, but not necessarily co-located a kindergarten in a factory right next to each other. We have not gone down that route. One of the problems that run into is that hey, there are always exceptions and there are always geographical differences 
how do you apply a consistent set of rules to all 200 some countries in the world to get the, the highest value. We could spend a lot of time on a rule to clean up data in a place that only has, you know, a hundred thousand POIs. And so th there's, there's some level of value. How much effort does it take to apply this rule globally or individually? And where do we get the most bang for our buck is a prioritization decision. And I guess to that example that I gave before was obviously not that well thought out. So <laughs> thanks for your kind words there. But also it assumes that we understand all of the cultural norms about locating businesses, institutions, you know, these places. And when you just talked about like uh, applying this on, on a global scale, it occurred to me that like, well, this is never going to be possible. We're going to take our Western understandings of what's right and what's wrong and start applying it to the rest of the world. Hmm, that doesn't sound like a great idea. So I could see why that's probably a, a really challenging problem to solve. Yeah. And maybe one quick example of you know, years past is, you know, we had some name cleaning process uh, to make sure that all names in a certain country were consistent you know, in the country's native language. And we were, you know, dropping data on the floor where the names did not follow that convention. But it turns out that those places were actually valid and the name consistency rule was not actually applicable to this country anymore. And so we have to go update or change and remove that rule. So even ones that you know, we have that we, we think are broadly applicable, we have to continually reevaluate and like, okay, for this region, does this make sense? Uh, and how, how do we build the best data set for a given region so that the user end users of this data, if you're using it in Korea or Japan or Turkey, how does each user of our data in that country feel like it makes sense to them that it is a data set that's like, oh, this doesn't fail the sniff test and it's a good data set. So, I mean, this is a huge problem in itself. Where are all the places in the, in the world and what is happening at that place? <laughs> I, I don't think that'll be solved anytime soon. Another problem is locating that place accurately, or at least this is my guess. So again, going back to our example, we have an app on our phone. It is location aware. We can say it's here. But my, my guess is that everybody is coming up with a slightly different set of coordinates for each place that they check into. And, I, and my guess is also that these different data sets that you try to conflate to create the sort of global understanding of place, I mean, they'll have slightly different coordinates as well. How, how do you deal with that? How do you find the right coordinate? That is another space where machine learning comes in for us. We have a process, we call it our geo summarizer. And it's how do we summarize all of those inputs and turn them into the right output? It uses things like building polygons. So we know there are roads and there are buildings, but the input coordinates from a source say that, you know, it's in the middle of a forest or, you know, not where it should be according to the roads and buildings of that address. We can discard those coordinates or we can average or cluster them together and pick out a either synthetic 
coordinate from all of our sources or pick the best one that has the most corroborating features. And this is kind of where a lot of the user, the user input data comes in definitely in dense urban environments where the geocode of an address may conflict with what a device actually sees when it is in that building. So, you know, we have like, I was, what we call the phones, phones, eye view of the world and the map coordinate view of the world. And we can kind of apply that separately given the context in which someone is asking us for that data, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 it does. But th this would also lead to a situation where you would have multiple locations for one single place. At least this is my guess. Like I'm thinking of, of the example of a, um, a stadium. You, you could have lots of different entrances to stadiums, people checking in all over the place. Where is the stadium? Or like, how do you know which of those coordinates or which of those locations to discard or keep? Do, do you just clump them together and say, oh, well, we're, we're fine with having multiple coordinates for this entry? Yeah, and that's one of the outputs of our geo summarizer. We, we allow multiple coordinates per location. We'll have like a rooftop, a popular, a drop-off location, a main entrance location, and using all of our sources. If we notice multiple kind of clusters for a given location, we try to as assign them appropriately to a different geocode. So you, you're right, exactly. Uh, a given place can have multiple geocodes and then our customers or our users based on the, the use case that we're powering for that product will use the one appropriate for them. Like if you had a ride hailing app, they would likely want the drop-off location of a POI and we should be able to provide that to them, which may be different than the check-in location and that a user oh, I'm inside this building somewhere. And that's where my device usually sees me, which is different from the where I might get dropped off or picked up. Yeah, that makes sense. Does that also mean that when a, a user is checking in, saying, I'm here, they're giving you a location and hopefully, I, I guess in a perfect world for, from your point of view, they're giving you a whole bunch of data about that place, about that location. Is that being attached to all of these different locations, all of the different possible locations that represent this point of interest? Uh, it depends a little bit on what you mean by all or other data. We get as much as we can from the device just to help out like the, the accuracy of the location, because depending on if someone's on Wi-Fi or off Wi-Fi or certain different cell carriers, their accuracy from the location services on their device might be a whole lot different and kind of knowing the accuracy of the location and the carrier, for example, that generated it may indicate something about the quality of service when the user checks in and whether or not that location should be usable. So we have outlier detection on check-ins so that we don't get skew or throw out low accuracy points, make sure that the locations that we're getting uh, are appropriately calibrated to the place. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense as well. What I was getting at with that last question is that, you know, we've got multiple coordinates representing that the same point of inter interest 
but we've also got users that are attaching data to those coordinates. They're saying, I'm checking in here. I like this. I didn't like that. This is a Chinese restaurant. This is a good place to eat pizza, that kind of thing. Are they all being, in the, in the case of our stadium again, are they all being attached to the same, like to, to some sort of centroid uh, of all these sort of multiple locations that represent this one point of interest? Our unit there is the check-in and the check-in is location signal at a POI. That does not necessarily make it unique for a coordinate. A coordinate could have multiple check-ins to different POIs. And we try and solve that a few ways. We'll see patterns and we kind of build up what we call a place shape. So a place shape would be kind of like a, uh, a Gaussian model of the shape in which a user would normally check into a certain venue and we try and have non-overlapping shapes so that we can kind of generate a shape for a given place and drive some probabilistic models off of that. One of the other ways that that manifests itself is in the hierarchy of places, uh, which is a, a unique, somewhat unique thing to Foursquare. I think something we do really well is the the nature of places are not independent of other places. Malls are venues in and of themselves. There is a shape for, them, for a mall, but there is also a contained shape for the footlocker inside the mall. And so we need to be able to understand the complex relationships of places within places. And so, you know, like an airport gate inside of a terminal, inside of a concourse, in the whole airport. So we'll have potentially six levels of venue hierarchy that kind of help us understand the place and the context of the place. Wow. I'm thinking of some, some things that might be a little bit, a bit tricky now. Like I'm thinking of things like pop-up stores, food trucks, coffee truck. People might want to check into those as well. And like when they are stopped there, it is a place. It has a location. But how do we deal with something like that that might be mobile? Those are the most challenging of problems for a few reasons. You need to have real-time data for things like pop-ups that may only exist for two days. If you have a product cycle of, you know, we'll deliver nightly updates uh, or API updates, then how quickly can we get something in it so that it is usable for users? So that, that's kind of one problem. Broadly for things like food trucks, for example, based on category, we treat those a little bit separately than uh, other categories where if something is categorized as a food truck, our summarization process for generating a new coordinate for that venue will take recency into account much more heavily than it would, you know, a brick and mortar store that you do not expect to move. So food trucks can get updated on every single check-in given that we believe the coordinates to be legitimate so that that POI is updated in real time. So that's good for the app use case, but when we're delivering data nightly or monthly to some of the people that use our POI data, we kind of lose some of our velocity there. And those locations are not all that useful in our kind of 
what I would consider our commercial data product. Does this mean that you have um, perhaps multiple different data cuts? So like a user-generated data cut here uses that this is, this is really fresh, this is, this is up to date, or this is right now. Take this, use this, and, and perhaps for your commercial clients where you need to see, like maybe you need to see the, the food truck, the coffee truck, the, the whatever else, multiple times to get an idea that, okay, th- this is a regular occurrence, it'll be back here again, this thing still exists a month later, and then move it over into the kind of data that you might deliver to your commercial partners? Yeah, we want to have our product be flexible to meet the needs of all of our use cases. The most real time would be our API product, whether you know it's our apps using it or our customers using it. If you want real time updates, that is the source that we keep up to date, knowing that things are more likely to be not quite as validated in that data set. But then once we get into the you know, more data products where someone may buy from us the set of POIs in Chicago. Within that, we'll have various cuts for quality or category or chain. And the customer can, can, some people may want, they don't care about places that have closed, right? They want all places that have existed uh, in the last year in Chicago for certain analyses. And we have that, but most customers don't want closed places. They only want things that we know to be open and not open in the like hours of operation perspective, but actively doing business. Can we just go back to the data taxonomy for a second? Earlier in the conversation, you you talked about these parent-child relationships. I think your example was if we have a mall, so we know something about the mall. These are the access points. This is the shape of of the mall. I think that's the way you described it. Mm -hmm. But we also know that this is a container that we have other places with inside that. So my question is, are these relationships global or, or how do you make this thing feel local? Because, you know, th- there'll be different sort of parent, parent child relationships in different countries. At, le- at least that's my guess. There'll be different kinds of categories in, in different countries. To name like a, a, a stupid example, my guess is they don't call it Chinese food in China. Yeah. How do you make these things feel local? Yeah. Uh, so I'll speak first to the parent-child relationship and then to the kind of globalization of the data. Parent-child, I think, is a broadly usable concept, like the food court inside of a Costco is a parent-child relationship, or the Starbucks inside of a grocery store or supermarket is a, you kind of just globally represents there is a place inside of a place we don't restrict those to certain categories so i you know, i think that one's easier a mall and airport are the common ones but department stores may have the same thing or grocery stores or universities universities are a thing they have buildings and the buildings have classrooms we don't restrict that in any way but for the chinese restaurant example Our category system, we have a little over 1,200 categories that we use to categorize places across the world. So that's our category taxonomy. Some of those categories are only visible in certain countries. In the China market, uh, we would likely not show a Chinese food category, but we would have 
uh, Xi'an or Sichuan or Hong Kong food and a restaurant. And those categories would be applicable in the Chinese market. And so we, we try to adapt the category system to reflect the depth of expressiveness for a given country. And uh, we do the best we, we reevaluate categories on a monthly basis, determine if we need to add new ones and make sure that they are appropriately showing up. You wouldn't expect Italian restaurant to show up in Italy. You kind of have the different flavors. The restaurants are the easy ones to talk about in that in regard, but we, we do our best to make sure that it feels local. We have translations for names and categories, uh, place names and categories and countries and chains, uh, is another big one in 12 languages right now, but you know, consistently trying to add as many as possible. You mentioned chain stores before, and, um, I think in a previous conversation, we talked about this idea of Starbucks. So, so let's say someone checks in, creates a new point of interest and says, Hey, I'm, I'm at a Starbucks. The Starbucks does not exist in your database. This is the first time it's been seen in, in your data set. Do you just automatically populate that with all the stuff that you know about the other Starbucks, knowing that, okay, this is part of a chain. This is standard stuff. Let's just push these attributes over there as well. Sometimes, <laughs> I think it's the answer. Some chains are homogenous and some are not. So they all are named the same. They all have the same website. They all have the same general properties about them. Other ones may, you know, have country specific websites, country specific names. So it, I can't remember if Starbucks falls into this bucket, but something might not be called Starbucks in a country, uh, might be called something else. So, uh, our chain system kind of knows we classify chains in that way, uh, and then we'll use that knowledge to decide what is rendered to a customer or user. So I would say not broadly accepted right away, uh, for something like Starbucks, we have a source of data that we believe to be the source of truth for Starbucks and we would validate uh, a user saying that they were there against that and we use that as a flag of, Hey, why doesn't our source have that data or, you know, accept it and add it to the list. What places are really hard to get data for? The hardest to get data for are the regional chains that you know, a user would expect the place to, you know, classify this as it's a bad example, but there's a small, like 10 store chain around me called soul taco. And as a person living in the Midwest of the United States, and they have stores in Illinois and Missouri, it would be great if the Foursquare data product knew that that was a chain and that there was a specific website for the chain and I could go see their other locations. But that's really hard for us to know because there's thousands and thousands, thousands of those types of chains all over the world. It's very difficult to get that broad local chain coverage across the globe in a way that uh, makes the products feel authentic for users. 
So when you say authentic, you're you're thinking like you as a user living in this specific area. This is important to you. You have made, maybe you've eaten there before. Maybe you have a relationship to to this restaurant for whatever reason, and it's important to you. But it doesn't exist in in Foursquare at the moment because it's really difficult. So so you're saying that this is the conflict. This is the tension. It's important for the user because it's part of their local culture, but it's really really difficult to get that data, especially at at a larger scale. Yeah, at a, at a global scale, making the product feel familiar for everyone is a challenge. You know, we only have so many people and so many users and our knowledge of the world, while we think it's very high, is still going to be limited. And so unless, unless we employed thousands of people around the globe to continually keep data familiar to the users locally, uh, it'll be really hard. So we'll, we'll do things like, you know, regionally group venues by name and suggest into our queues of processing. Oh, looks like there's 15 places spread out in this state with the same name. Is this an inferred chain? Should we infer that this is a chain? And then someone can go look at it and say, oh yeah, that's a chain. Here's some more information about it. So we have queues and internal process that we can flag data to go and manually account for this. And we try and do our best to surface the most, most impactful things, but uh, yeah, familiarity, I think is a, is a hard problem. This was an example of a place that's really difficult to get data for. What places do you have a lot of data for where it's really easy to collect? data broad chains with store locators on their websites kind of are the the easiest or the places that people go the most you know if you look at check-ins on foursquare the most popular places are airports train stations and disney world <laughs> yeah. if only because you if you think of the broad set of millions of foursquare users what are the places that they all have in common? The places that they all have in common are the places that the most people meet up and usually transport and I guess Disney World. That's where the most people go collectively. So while an individual user may be able to you know, give us data on a restaurant that opened up, there's a low chance that a lot of our users are going to interact with that. So we get better data on the places where more of our users communally interact. So I'm, I'm listening to you talk about this. And we, of course, we started the conversation by saying, hey, it's really difficult to know all of the places in the world. And you, you talked us through how you're doing that. You're using these different data sets and conflating that with your own user first party data that you're collecting. So the, you're crowdsourcing this, conflating with, with these known data sets that you have and trying to figure out like, where is everything in the world? Then you've got this other problem, which is where is this place in the world? We Now we know it exists. We can see it in several different data sets. We've got users that are confirming that, yes, this is a place. Now, where is it in the world? And that depends on, I think you talked about this idea of the phone's eye view of the world, the device's eye view of the world. And that leads to a lot of multiple coordinates and a, a few sort of complications or challenges, I should say, around figuring out the, the precise coordinate for these things. And you end up in a situation where you have more than one coordinate for, for these different places. 
you know, big challenges to solve. At the same time, you've got users that want fresh data. At, at least this is my guess. They want fresh data. They want new places to explore. And you've got commercial customers that want certainty about the data that they're buying for you. When you're looking at all of this, what's more important to you? Is it more important to validate the data that you already have to confirm that, yes, these places exist and sort of tighten in that, that geolocation of them? Or is it more important to you to get new data? Mm. I would take the easy way out and say both. But I think the, the negative outcomes of being wrong about a place that we have are worse than us not having a place at all. So I guess to, to expand on what I mean by that, uh, someone's searching for a, they want to get burgers and we say, oh, there's this place here that you can get burgers. They're going to use that as an input and may actually go to that place. If we send them to that place and that place does not exist, that's a really bad outcome for our user and for our user's perception of us. If we don't have a restaurant that opened a week ago, I think there is, from a customer's perspective, A, they need to know that that place exists already and then say, oh, that place already exists, Foursquare, why don't you have that place? And in there, I think there's more plausible, like, yeah, this problem's hard. We haven't gotten it yet. And there's more kind of acceptance if we've failed there. So I think making sure that the places that we have are an accurate reflection of the real world is probably the most important thing to us. Well, thank you very much, Kyle. We've come a long way in the discussion. It's been really, really interesting. To be honest, I wouldn't have dreamed it was so difficult. <laughs> to or challenging maybe maybe i should you i'll use the word challenging it was so challenging to to work with this data i appreciate the insights that, you, that you've shared with us if someone wants to get a hold of you and continue the conversation wants to reach out learn more that kind of thing where, where could they go to do that linkedin is the best option right now You're searching kyle fowler foursquare best chance to find me on linkedin happy to reply to any any and all questions from there so that's probably the best way I would guess. Yeah. Other, other than that, you know, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for your time, Kyle. It's been, it's been great talking with you. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure.